Lord, we just sang how much we need you. And I do pray, Lord, that these weren't just words that we sang because they're on the screen. Lord, that, that this song really does reflect the condition of our hearts. Lord, we need you. Lord, this world is not a friend to your people. There is the dividing line. Lord Jesus, when you came to Jerusalem on that day, when you rode in a donkey, that was Lamb Selection Day. Father, you offered your son as your lamb, but they rejected you, Lord Jesus. But Lord, today, here at Grace United and all around the world, millions of people have received the lamb. I pray, Lord, that today as we get into this very practical passage of Scripture, that you will help us to reflect how much we need you by the way we live our lives. I pray, Father, that you'll lead us and guide us. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher today. And we're going to thank you and praise you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin with a prophecy, as in a prediction of the future. Agabus was one of the group of prophets who were headquartered in Jerusalem. One day they arrived in a newly recognized center of the followers of the way, Antioch, a city in modern-day Turkey, about 300 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Antioch was a place where what we would call world missions was launched. And Barnabas and Saul were at the forefront of this missionary movement. In Acts chapter 13, we read that several church leaders were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And during their worship, they heard the Holy Spirit telling them, separate, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And Barnabas and Saul then went on their first missionary journey. But this was not the first connection of Antioch with worldwide missions, or more precisely, empire-wide missions. In Acts 11.20, we find that the Messianic Jewish disciples began preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch, and the Lord added to His church many from that city. And for over a year, the new disciples, both Jews and Gentiles, were taught the ways of the Lord. And the discipleship training was so evident among them that the non-Christians there sat up and took notice of the Christians. And it was in Antioch where the non-Christians nicknamed the followers of the way, in a very unflattering term, Christians. And this term, Christians, means little Christs. And it was the first time that they were referred to as Christians in Antioch. Now, this term, Christians, was a major put down. It was a term of derision. It's as if, you know, like today, if somebody who was a non-Christian were to call a Christian holier than thou, or judgmental, or fill-in-the-blank phobic, that's the kind of idea that the term Christian carried then. It was at Antioch when Agapus made a prediction of dire times in the near future that a famine, a worldwide famine, was to come upon 
the empire. So what to do with this prediction of Agabus? Well, Luke writes this in Acts 11, 29 and 30. He says, So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Again, from Antioch to Judea. And they did so, living, ascending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Notice the wording that Luke uses because we're going to see this again today. The relief here was most likely financial, and certainly it was according to the ability of the disciples. And according to the historians, the coming famine was actually a series of severe famines throughout the empire under the reign of while Claudius, the emperor, was reigning. It was the famine in Judea that the prophet Agabus was predicting. Food was about to get very scarce. And, of course, the food prices were going to go sky high. The saints, primarily the Jews who lived around Jerusalem in Judea, were about to encounter a great need. And so the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, sent a collection to these brothers and sisters to help prepare for the famine. We might want to call this one of the times that the, Christ, that the, that the church was doing the prepper thing. Now, isn't it a great thing for those in the family of God to not only take care of one another when there's a need, but even prepare for it before it takes place? The Lord gave His disciples a commandment that He never rescinded. John 13, 34, and 35, He says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And it will be just a couple hours after Jesus spoke these words to his disciples that he would be praying to the Father in John chapter 17. And his request to the Father was that all of his disciples would be one, would be unified. And here's what he said. Father, I do not ask for these only, as in the 11 apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Powerful request, wouldn't you agree? Now, as we pointed out so many times, unity has always been what the Lord has been about concerning his disciples. And love is His commandment among Christians. The world will know that we are Jesus' disciples if we love who? One another, fellow Christians. And the world will also know that, that, that Jesus came to be their Lord and Savior if we live together in unity. Love and unity are to be two hallmarks of the Christian. And so here's the bottom line up front for this message today. And that is, love and unity among us as God's people, as God defines love and unity, is what we are to be about. And this is really at the heart of everything that we do. See, evangelism is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And when non-Christians see our unity, this is the best demonstration of what evangelism does and can do in the heart of a human being. Now, of course, love and unity 
is at the very heart of disciple-making as well. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5 what the goal of all they wanted to do in the church was this. This was the teaching. This is what the goal was. And it was this, how to love. And Paul said this, 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge, the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's it. We are to learn how to love. This is disciple-making, what it's all about. Again, it is love, though, as God defines love, not as the world tells us how we should view love. So let me highlight just two more points before we actually get into our passage for today. I'm setting this up. We're going somewhere with this, so just hang on if you would. Again, our passage today is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 24. Now, love and unity is to be expressed between Christians. The world's telling us, hey, we've all got to be coming together in unity. We all have to be coming together in love. But God says love and unity are to be in, in, in the church among Christians. These precious things were not given to non-Christians. Remember a vital point here. Remember Agabus predicted that a famine was going to affect Judea. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, okay? But I can safely say that not every person in Judea were followers of Jesus. Would you agree with this? Agabus did not go to the various government agencies and announce his prediction to get ready for the famine. He wasn't there. He wasn't about to help the world uh, become a better place to prepare even for the famine that was coming. Where did he go? He announced this prediction to the Christians. And notice as well, the collection that the Christians raised was not for everybody in Judea. Who was it raised for? For the Christians. Ergo, love and unity among Christians is what God is after. Second, the money was raised for a need for the Christians outside their immediate assembly, outside of Antioch. It was to be given to the church in Judea, primarily given to the headquarters in Jerusalem for it to be distributed. It was for the brothers and sisters literally hundreds of miles away from Antioch. Open-handed generosity was not limited to those just in that one local assembly. It was for those in other local assemblies as well. Once again, the purpose for the church is not to facilitate human flourishing. The purpose for the church is not to make the world a better place. The purpose for the church is to be the better place, to give those outside the kingdom of God a much better alternative than the way that they're living inside the kingdom of darkness. And those outside can see the alternative if we as Christians are living together in love and unity. Again, as God defines love and unity. See, any civic or even government organization can and sometimes does make things better for for humanity in this life. Lives in this life do sometimes improve when human beings help other human beings by whatever source. But no civic or government agency can do what the church does. Do you realize this? We have a unique place in the world. Though the church is to help one another with things that they need in this life, our primary task 
is not that. Our primary task is to help us to get ready for the next life. Rare indeed is it the concern of any civic or government organization to help others prepare for the next life. Would you agree with that? No government wants to do that. They want to be all about in the here and now, and rightly so. But the church meets needs in this life and in preparation for the life to come. Now, we could spend a whole lot more time on this, but we need to move on to our passage. Again, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 24. Now, we began in the book of Acts today because what happened there serves as a foundation of what Paul is doing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Remember, he and Barnabas were the brothers who delivered the much-needed money for the famine relief for the saints in Jerusalem and in Judea. Now, I marvel at God's timing here in this series. Today, we're going to be talking about some bedrock principles of giving, of finances, of money, okay? This is what we're going to talk about today. I see some hackles raised, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about money this week and what's really going to amount to next week, not money specifically, but the incredible gift that God has given us. And then the following week, we're going to talk again about money. See, again... Next week, we're going to talk and we're going to bask in God's ultimate goodness to us in His most extraordinary, most exquisite gift He could ever give us, which is salvation found in the death and the resurrection of Christ. And Paul loudly and proudly proclaims this gift in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. And again, the following week, we're going to be taking another dive into principles of giving. So yes, we're going to be talking about money after Easter as well. But you won't want to miss what I'm going to have to say. It may surprise some of you, especially if you haven't been around for a little while, of what my opinions are and what, how we feel and how I feel about how Christians are to interact with the church and finances and all that kind of thing. But... I'm going to also be sharing some things that I have rarely disclosed concerning giving. So you don't want to miss what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. And I have a hunch that the Lord is going to set some of us free when it comes to finances. Because I got a feeling that some people are kind of bound up in this. And so the Lord wants wants us to be free to give, not under a burden and not under a yoke. And we're going to be talking about even some of that today. But because it took me a little while to get here to set the stage, we're going to hit some, only some of the outcroppings of this passage, again, in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 24. Because what we found in Acts 11 is the fact that back then, as Paul began his ministry of finances and collecting it and giving it for famine relief, mission activity, we find here in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is still at it. He's still doing this. See, The saints in Judea are still struggling after all these years and when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. Apparently, even though the devastation of the famine in Judea fell off the empire-wide news cycle, massive needs still existed. And so Paul and company were busy going from church to church, communicating the need. But before we talk about that, let's reach back just a little bit to remind us of where Paul is in all of this 
concerning the Christians. And so turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Now, if you remember how Corinthians is structured, 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection and about what Christ did. He rose again and gave us eternal life. And then what does Paul do? He immediately goes into something very practical, down to earth, and that's giving. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so also are you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Again, famine relief. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Remember, Paul made this announcement to the Corinthians back in the first letter, a couple of years before he wrote 2 Corinthians. They were to continue, he said, to set aside what they decided in their heart to give toward this famine relief effort. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see how important this one particular principle is. It is the decision regarding how much to give. And that decision is made by the one making the contribution. That person makes the decision. He has decided, she has decided in their heart of what to give. No one tells them this is between them and God. Also, they were to give on an ongoing basis, here he says. Paul told them to store it up so when he comes, they can take the money in mass and give it for the famine relief. Nickel and diming stuff will not work here in this. Third, by their storing up the collection, they were to show their commitment to giving in this was not merely driven by emotions, not merely driven by sympathy. Now, as we know, sympathy over somebody's plight can only carry us a little ways, can't it? Some people can carry a lot further than others, but it can only carry us a certain, a certain distance. And it makes sense, though, doesn't it? Take the aftercare of a family who someone has passes away. You know, with the best of intentions, what do we do? We say to them, say to the grieving family, we're there for you, I'm there for you, as long as it takes. How long? Are we there? A couple weeks, three weeks, four weeks maybe? And then what happens? We have to get on with our lives. They have to get on with their lives. Well, Paul says in essence, don't stop giving until you have completed what you promised that you would do. Don't stop. Don't stop. Now let's turn to our passage today, finally. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 24. And we're going to see three things here in, this, in, this, in these verses. In verses 1 to 5, we're going to see the Macedonian motivation to give to the famine relief. These are tremendous principles from the Macedonian churches that we can follow as well. Very practical stuff, very wise stuff here. In verses 6 to 15, we're going to see Paul encouraging the Corinthians to complete what they've started. And then in verses 16 to 24, we're going to see accountability in action. And this is a necessary and a, ref- and a very refreshing thing whenever and wherever finances are involved. And I just want to say here at Grace United, we have a very, very great team full of integrity helping out with God's money 
I just want to say that. Just, I just want to praise God for this team. Here's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. What an amazing attitude this was, wasn't it? What a great example. Now, these churches... As he said, the Macedonian churches, they were the churches, the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, and also the church in Berea. This was the group of churches in Macedonia. And they were ready and willing and able to help with this massive famine relief. They were in large measure Gentile churches, but ethnic issues, and we will call them racial issues today, meant nothing to them. There was a need in the family, and they would be on the front lines helping them to alleviate that need. But notice the scope of their motivation to help. The external forces, no doubt, tempted them to turn inward. See, they were severely afflicted. They were persecuted as brothers and sisters because of their faith in Christ. They were conspicuous in their Christian witness, and people persecuted them for it. Also, they were in extreme poverty. And so the natural thing, what they should have done by all rights, was to turn inward and keep the money, keep the funds for themselves. Isn't that what we would normally do? If we were in dire straits and we needed money, we had poverty, what would we do? We would keep it, but not them. The Holy Spirit got all over them, so to speak, and they wanted to give. They did not live natural lives. They lived supernatural lives. The joy that they had in the Lord overflowed from their wallets to their hands and over to Judea. And to make matters even more profound, notice in verses 3 to 5, the depth of the motivation to help. First, they gave of themselves to the Lord and to Paul and his friends. For them, it was not simply throwing money at a problem. They took this as a joyful opportunity to express the love that they had for the Lord by meeting the real needs of their brothers and their sisters on another continent, hundreds of miles away. And they trusted that Paul and his friends were going to carry out the mission. Their giving was a sacred trust. And what this giving of themselves produced in them first was a giving beyond even what they could afford. This was their testimony. They wanted to give. Even though they couldn't afford it, they still did it anyway. This was the joy that they had. For those in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, giving for them was not something they had to do. No, for them, it was something of a profound privilege to do. And after Easter, I'm going to flesh some of this out. Because in our midst, I can see some of this. But let me simply introduce this. Think David in Bangladesh. 
because you and I have given to the Lord, we have an awesome privilege of helping this brother in what amounts to a situation that we can call a famine. Food is very scarce in Bangladesh, and it's getting increasingly so. And David and his wife have the responsibility now for two households. This is a reality. And so talk about the parallel here. But let's take away from these brothers and sisters in Macedonia two marvelous truths. First, they gave of themselves, not merely their money. Second, because their hearts were right before the Lord, they counted it a profound privilege to give to the brothers and sisters in need, regardless of their ethnicity and what they did. And by doing so, they showed their love and they showed their unity in the body of Christ. Seeing the Macedonian motivation in action, now let's look at Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians to finish what they started in verses 6 to 15. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also the desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should apply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, equality, as it were, in the body of Christ. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. In short, let's take a look at two principles here. First, the giving is to be grace-filled giving. Grace-filled giving. Notice how Paul describes the Corinthians' giving as he encourages them to finish what they started regarding the famine relief. In verse 7, he says, It is an act of grace, literally of a blessing. But it's not a blessing out of the goodness of one's heart, as if human goodness were in view. For notice again, verses 8 and 9. Their verbal commitment, if generosity is to be backed up by action, in this case, is the display of spiritual fruit of faithfulness. Finish what you start, Paul says. Paul wanted them to show their love to their Jewish brothers and sisters by completing what they started, meeting their real needs for food. But what was the source of this love and the call for um, faithfulness in expressing this to others? It was the extravagant, superabundant, over-the-top blessing of Christ to them. Christ, who has all riches, became poor. 
The king of the world stepped down from his throne to wash feet, to be laughed at, misunderstood, tortured, and killed. But in his poverty, he became the source of dispensing the riches of eternal salvation. And so what are the practical outworkings of this eternal salvation? What are the practical things here? Open-handed generosity, for one, to fellow disciples of Jesus, and all the while not shunning those outside the family of God. Let's not forget Galatians 6.10, which says, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Should we help non-Christians? Yes, we should. We should help non-Christians, absolutely. But God said through Paul, family first. If we have to rack and stack, we do family first. We give to disciples of Jesus first if there's a need. Again, for the purpose of displaying love and unity. This is not snobbery when we do this. It is witness. We are to make the world sit up and take notice that we are not to make the world a better place. We are to be the better place so they can see that there is a difference in the family of God as we meet one another's needs. And so besides grace giving, Paul says they are to be faithful in giving, faithful in their grace giving. In other words, don't put off storing up the offering. Give according to what you can give, but do this in a timely manner. In a word, this is what some people kind of refer to as like a faith promise, so to speak. For example, a person gives a certain amount or commits to giving a certain amount, and by the grace of God, they will give as the Lord supplies and provides. Small amounts saved up over the year can achieve the goal. And for example, let's say that as a family, you decided that you would, you would give to the Lord $5,200. Now, what does that mean? $100 a week, right? That's, that's what it comes down to. And so you decide that you would do that, and you would give as the Lord provides, you would give that $100 a week, and, and it would add up to 5200 at the end of the year. And do it if you, can, if you can afford it, store it up or give it. But let's just say, for example, you kind of like, well, the first week of January, I don't know if I can do this or not. And so you kind of get a little bit behind. And so you're not giving the first week. And then maybe the second week you're not giving. The third week you're not giving. And by the time, you, you know, March, April, May timeframe rolls, rolls around, you haven't given anything yet. So guess what that $5,200 is now? It's a little bit more difficult now, isn't it? The pledge that would, would have been achievable now is getting increasingly more difficult and it's become more of a burden. Paul didn't want this to be this way. So again, look at verses 11 and 12. Finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it. If the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. See, if you put it off, then then before you know it, you won't be able to have it. It won't be able to fulfill it. And Paul's point is simply this. God has given us resources in our care to meet the needs of, primarily in the family of God. We are to give as we're able to do so and as we decide to do so. Not so that we are excessively burdened, but because Christ has blessed us with eternal things, 
Therefore, we can give of our temporal resources to meet the needs of others. And should it be that we have needs, then other members of the body of Christ can meet ours as well. When it becomes our turn to have a need, other members can help us. And so again, the two takeaways from Paul's encouragement here to the Corinthians are these. First, giving is to be grace-filled. Jesus has given us profound spiritual riches. Has He not? Would He be asking too much of us to give of our material resources to meet the needs of those in the family of God? Is it too much to ask? I would say no. Second, we are to give out of our ability to give, not of our inability. Giving is not to be a burden. It's to be a joy. When's the last time you had a smile on your face giving your money? Sometimes it doesn't match, does it? But God says basically we're supposed to give joyfully, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks. Let's remember the words of our Lord, where your treasure is, finish it. There your heart will be. In other words, we willingly give to what we highly value. And again, that's a stark reality of things, isn't it? For example, if I, have a, if I have a very expensive hobby that I value more than anything else in the world, and I get this very expensive toy, what am I going to do with it? I'm going to be throwing a lot of money at it, aren't I? But let's say that the kingdom of God is not as valuable as my very expensive hobby. Don't ask me to take this money away from here and give it to the kingdom. That won't happen, will it? No matter what I say, that's not going to happen. It won't happen joyfully anyway. So now Paul has given us here now four principles for meeting the needs of our spiritual siblings. But as we give of our resources, it is imperative they be safeguarded by people of integrity. And this is what verses 16 to 24 is all about. But thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you. For he only, not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is giving to you out of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in man's sight. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters but who is now even more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you, Corinthians. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches for the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. I don't know if you've been keeping count, but I see five, at least five men full of integrity here in, their, in safeguarding this joyful sacrifice of the Corinthians. I see Paul, Timothy, Titus, the famous trusted brother appointed by the churches, supposedly from the Macedonian churches, and finally the brother 
tested and found earnest by Paul himself. This was a team to safeguard these offerings. These men are trusted. They are fellow workers in the gospel. They've been charged by the grace of God and changed. And at least for Paul, he has had the experience of doing these things. Remember, the very first missionary trip he took, basically, was from Antioch over to Jerusalem to deposit these funds. He had some experience in this. Recall that he also went to the Galatian churches. He mentioned here the Macedonian churches as well. And Corinth is in Achaia. So there are three provinces on two continents that Paul was was soliciting funds for this famine relief, this major project. Paul is not hiding what he's doing here. He's collecting money for the famine relief for these saints in Judea. Integrity, relationship, tested, proven character. This is what these men have for the task of collecting a lot of money for the Jewish Christians from believers all over the empire. What an incredible show of love and unity. Let me make two points here in this part before we finish the message. First, money is neutral. It is a great servant, though, but a very poor master. It has a way of revealing character. Jesus said it best in Matthew 6, 24, as he always says it best, right? He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or God and mammon. The point that Jesus is making here is not that it's a sin to uh, put to serve money, although it is. But the original language points something out here. It's not the simpleness of serving money, but the impossibility of serving both. You cannot do it, Jesus says. It's impossible. One must serve either one or the other. And literally the saying is true. Money is okay to have, but the question is, does money have you? Because as we know, it's not money. It's the love of money which is the root of all kinds of evil. It reveals one's heart. Second, a team of people with the utmost of integrity is an absolute must in any ministry where there are are any level of finances. How many pastors, how many ministries have been destroyed because of those who are entrusted with the finances have been found untrustworthy? Members of the financial team must share the heart of Paul and his companions as he describes this in verses 20 and 21. He says, we take this course so that no one should blame us or could blame us about this generous gift being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. In other words, everything above board honorable in the sight of man and in the sight of God. In a word, it's not my money. Once it leaves the hand of one giving it, it now becomes whose money? God's money. And the financial team must have Teflon hands. You know what I'm talking about, right? You know what Teflon is? Too many financial team members, though, have a little bit of Velcro on their fingertips. And the result is double dishonor for the ministry, both in the sight of God and the sight of man. It is a big thing when we talk about money and finances and those kinds of things. 
Well, this message is chock full of application. Would you agree? It's incredible here how much practicality there is here. Let's make it personal. Number one, we give ourselves to the Lord before we give our money to the cause. Number two, with a right heart, giving is a profound privilege, not a burden. If you find it to be a burden, it's really not the issue of money. It's the issue of the heart, isn't it? Number three, giving is a grace-filled response based on Christ's exquisite eternal grace to us. Number four, we give according to our ability, not our inability. Let's not look at our neighbor as to much they're giving, all right? We look at our own heart and we say, okay, Lord, how much should I be giving? And this applies the, implies that we give systematically so that we can achieve what we decided in our hearts to give. A little bit of a long-term view as well. You don't come in here and say, well, how much should I give this week? No, we need to decide before hand to get how much we need to give. Number five, money reveals character and who our master really is. Is it God or is it mammon? And number six, a trusted team with members full of integrity is required when handling God's money. Did you get all that? I hope you did. hope you internalized this. So let's finish this message this morning with a reminder of what Grace United is all about. See, the Lord has entrusted us with this ministry. Let's commit ourselves anew and afresh to accomplishing the mission He has set for us. For after all, these things are what the Lord has in mind for every local church. Upon the foundation of prayer, we exist for three things, right? And what are they? To love God, learn the Bible, care for people, the lost and the found. We are to evangelize the lost. We're to disciple the saved, and we're to live together in love and unity. For the glory of the King, we pledge these things, that He might glorify Himself here at Grace United. Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing to me how practical Your Word is. And, quite honestly, how convicting Your Word is. How challenging your word is. Lord, we've so often been deceived into thinking that this money is all mine. I can do with it what I want. To some degree, that's true. Because, Lord, you don't need our money. What you need is our hearts, or what you want is our hearts. Because, Lord, you own everything there is. How can we outgive? How can we give you what you don't have? But, Lord, we need to give. We need to express to you our heartfelt appreciation for what you've done for us. And what better way than to give of our resources, our valuable resources, to the needs that our brothers and sisters have. We thank you, Lord, for these principles of giving. I pray that you help us to take them, to internalize them, and to live them out. Not just so that other ministries or even Grace United can get more money. That's not the issue Because, Lord, we have seen you work in so many tremendous ways over the years here. Lord, you can provide and you have provided in such an amazing way at times. So, But, Lord, we need to give to show you, again, our appreciation. So I pray, Father, that you help us to understand these things, to take them, to be challenged by them, and then to apply them for your honor, for your glory. 
Again, Lord, help us, please, to accomplish the mission that you've given us. And we'll give you thanks and praise for what you are doing and what you will do in our lives as we have changed hearts in your sight. And we pray now, Father, for our giving, that you would indeed help us to give as an act of worship to you because you alone deserve it. We pray also, Lord, that you would help us to sing with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength, again, because you alone deserve it. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.